Hello and welcome to Full Send with Christina Kim and Alan Shipnuck. Uh, just back from Tory Pines in an epic U.S. Open. Christina, I can tell by the gilded mirror behind you that you're somewhere exotic. Where are you right now? I am in Duluth, Georgia, just outside of Atlanta, getting ready for the one, two, third of our five majors on the LPGA Tour schedule, the KPMG Women's PGA Championship. And yeah, I'm behind a gilded mirror. I'm, I've got a uh, cozy Airbnb this week. But I'm, you know, within 15 minutes of the golf course. So all I need is a kitchen and a bed and I'm happy and I have a kitchen and we have multiple beds in this place. So I'm very happy. It's one of my favorite parts of Master's Week is to examine the the decor of our rented house. It's always, um, shall we say, eclectic. And uh, (laughs) uh, I don't rent as many houses as you do, but it's always a voyeuristic thing to, to walk in and be like, ooh, let's... Let's see what we got. But that it looks it looks like it could be like, you know, the Palace of Versailles there. It's not so bad, I guess. <laughs> oh, it's it like I said, it's got bedrooms and kitchen. That's all I need. But it's a lovely it's a lovely mirror behind me. And yes, I did spend a number of minutes trying to find the appropriate background for me to be recording this. That's awesome. Well, I mean, I'm, I try not to think of myself as too high maintenance, but so my, I was staying at the La Jolla Marriott, uh, during the U S open and the, I got in bed the first night and the mattress was so firm. I, I couldn't do it. So I, I get up, you know, put some clothes on. I call, uh, I call the front desk. Like, do you have a mattress pad or anything? I said, no. I was like, okay, bring me up two comforters. Like, okay. So I've done this before. Unmake the bed, put the comforters down underneath the sheets still wasn't great but i i was i mean i was tired so i conked out woke up the next day i felt like i'd gone 15 rounds with mike tyson i was like sore and stiff and my neck so i went to target and bought a a foam mattress topper and used it all week and now i'm gonna go return it at target it's um so i i've probably done this like five or six times in my life like you have you can't sleep bad for a whole week and you have to be creative so and I can't have five or six, you know, full mattress toppers in my garage. I, I don't know. <laughs> Hold I, these, on. Are, um, these are travel tips for, you know, for those of you out there who might might need the help. So I, pardon the interruption. I, I thought <laughs> you were going on a tangent in one direction talking about how you're not high maintenance. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like to think of myself not high maintenance, but the evidence is suggesting the contrary. But, ah, there's again the little feel versus real action going on. I gotcha. I gotcha. I, I you, like, you are very you're you're so right though that sleep is so vital, and by way of that, I like I I always joke um, because my my caddy. Todd is six foot four and he's like 10 inches taller than I am. So whenever we fly, I'm always like, like this might be TMI, but if I'm sat on the toilet and I just like kind of like try and get my heels on the ground, 90% of the time my heels don't even touch the ground because I'm short and stumpy. So I'm always like, oh, I don't mind wherever I sit on the plane. It's all good. And he's just like, oh my gosh, like, you know, it's, it's, we got to make sure that, you know, at the very worst, I want, I always make sure to get him at the very worst, like an exit row seat. So, cause he's got those long dancers legs. And so I, I, I understand that the world is very different for people that are either taller than me or even the same height as me, but actually have proportionally length legs and arms to their body. 
Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I'm not sure why I felt compelled to share that, but um, it's on my. It's a wonderful day. travel tip. It's a great travel tip, and uh, but I, so did you get to watch much of the U.S. Open? I mean, it was it was epic out there. Yes, I. So I did manage to watch a decent amount of the final round. Um, I watched a good portion of the third round and a few bits and bobs in the uh, the second round of the U.S. Open. And holy shit, dude! Like I, it was so exciting before the leaders had even teed off because you you, know, you had Rory going off. Um, you know, a couple groups behind and, you know, I, I felt really bad and I, I was talking to Todd and I was like, Louie's going to, I want Louie to win, but Louie's going to come runner up again. And I know this. My Sunday was quite interesting in that I'm just writing the game story and it's, I'm, I just have the winner come what may. So, um, you know, I'm thinking I'm sort of, when Rory makes that huge bending 35 footer, you know, or middle of the the front nine, it's like, okay, here we go. I start, I start working on my Rory story and I'm going through all my old notes. Cause I, I keep on my desktop files of like all the top players and things I haven't used previously that I've squirreled away from other majors or observations or little stolen moments. And I'm, I'm reading transcripts and I spend like a solid 45 minutes or an hour getting ready to write Rory because there's so much interest in him. You know, you have to be ready to go. And and then he, he starts to, you know, just sort of backpedal. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, okay. Bryson, you know, he almost jars that, that tee shot on number eight, which would have been mm-hmm. an iconic ace. And I'm like, oh, my God, Bryson's going to win the U.S. Open. So same thing, boom. I'm reading all his transcripts from the week, and I'm, I'm working on a Bryson lead, and I'm, I'm feeling good about that. And then, you know, he start, he starts to sputter, and it's like, oh my God, Louis's gonna do it, you know. And so, um, I had a thought for Louis, and I'm, I'm still gonna write this story at some point. But you know, everyone talks about what a natural talent he is, and so I ran out and I, I asked about six players. You know, what does that even mean? And it was really interesting. Uh, you know, like Kevin Streelman was, it's just the grace and the rhythm that, that can't be taught. You know, the way he uses that that ground force and. Um, and, um, Paul Casey had a very thoughtful answer and you know, he was talking about how aspirational Louie is that, that he just does, he's unbothered, you know, he, he, he has a, he wants to win. He, he tries his best and come and whatever happens, he just, he just rolls with it. And he said, that's what, that's what we're all trying to get to. And he's like, guys like you, you know, he's like pointing at me, you know, you, you probably <laughs> wish that he would win more and that he would do this and do that. He's like, Louie doesn't care. Like he gives his best. And when it's over, you know. And so I'm like, all right, I, I have tons of Louis material. I'm I'm feeling great about that. And then all of a sudden, someone's like, Rom just burned 17. I'm like, oh crap, John Rom. So, um, yeah. and the funny thing was, um, I had talked to Casey like half an hour uh, earlier, and we I've known him forever. We, he's one of my favorite guys out there. And in fact, when I went up to him, uh, I'm, I'm waiting for him out after he signed his card. I think he's like, oh bother. I just played 72 holes at U.S. Open golf and got kicked in the nuts. Now I have to talk to you. Like it was, um, <laughs> and so, so then, so then he's coming, he's like, he's like running to get to the, uh, I think the parking lot, you know, catch a plate. I'm like, wait, hold on. Rom's going to win. I need something on Rom. And he's like, he's like bloody hell. And so, but he, he, you know, he gave me this great quote about, um, you know, he's got the, the Spanish hands that all the, all the British boys talk about, um, you know, he's a descendant of Seve and, and Olathebel, but at the same time, he's you know he's got so much brute force, and uh, you know what a combination that is. And um, it was just it was a mad scramble, and um, 
you know, I got I got to eighteen in time to watch that putt go in, which was um, just <laughs> the electricity was phenomenal. I mean, I, I knew intellectually that I missed the fans, you know, during the COVID era when we were playing majors with really no crowds or small crowds, but um, hadn't really felt it in my chest like that. I mean, certainly, uh, you know, coming down in the eighteenth fairway in the with all the hooligans at the ocean course w- was was cool, and that was a neat experience, but. The outcome really wasn't in doubt, but that that explosion when something big like that happens that you know is going to change the the outcome of the tournament that that was that was magic and uh, really that was I, I love those moments even you know at that point most of the reporters are are in, in the press room typing it's like uh, every minute counts with, with the deadline but I always want to be out there behind the the last green because first of all just as as a fan experience it's it's phenomenal, but it also kind of burns into my brain the moment. And it's like, I can, you know, when I'm on my deathbed and I'm dictating my memoirs, that's like, Oh yeah, I remember John Rom. Yeah, that was cool. And, uh, so it's, um, and then it was, it was just a mad scramble to get the story done. But, uh, it was really funny that the highs and lows for me as, as in in the context of my story on a Sunday, this one was pretty extreme because, you know, also there was a minute where it looked like Kepka was going to do it. And, uh, it was it was just a phenomenal day with with you know brand name players just flying up and down the leaderboard. So uh, it was it was it was great fun. I mean, as as a as a spectator uh, and as as a chronicler, uh, I thought it was just a spectacular Sunday. And uh, I think the right guy won. I mean, it was a birdie seventeen eighteen, and uh, you know we've all been kind of waiting for Rom to kick down the door, and he did it in, in spectacular fashion. So uh, it was it was a hell of a U.S. Open. Yeah, no doubt, and. You know, Todd always talks about the law of averages. So considering what took place at Memorial and and how John was um, able to, you know, share his statement of, you know, the way that he was going to go about approaching the situation that took place, you know, it was it was pretty remarkable. And, And in all honesty, sometimes it's okay to get a little bit of a break before a major, you know, or a little bit of a break before, um, you know, teeing, teeing it up in a big tournament. Uh, this is something that I'm starting to relearn myself in that, you know, you don't have to go a hundred percent all day, every single day, because you're only going to have a certain amount in your reserves before you completely spent, which is something that I felt, um, you know, kind of going back to the, you know, the way the last five, six weeks have gone for me, just being able to just stop for a hot second every now and again and refocus and recollect yourself. I, it was, it was a really, it was a really, really cool story. Obviously I wanted Louie to win because, you know, like you were saying, like you can't, there's things that he does that you can't teach because he's not a big boy. You know I mean? I, 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 I don't know if the PGA Tour has accurately converted from centimeters to inches. I think 5'10 is a pretty big ask of saying how tall Louie is personally. Yeah. Um, he's like 5'8". I am. Yeah, yeah I, I, I would say I would say 5'9 is being, you know, the kind of thing that I do, which I like to, you know, round up to the nearest three quarters of an inch. Um, but I, I would say he's, you know, he's definitely closer to 5'9 than 5'10. Um, but, you know, what he's able to do with the golf ball and so easily and so seamlessly is just incredible. But going back to what John was able to do, um, you know, and, and it's such an amazing story the way, you know, the the last several weeks have gone. I, I think that it's it's almost like you can look upon that as 
a wonderful metaphor for how things have gone for the entirety of the world to an extent by way of the pandemic in that, you know, we all got kicked in the dick with the pandemic and everything. And now that we're, you know, we're, we're, I would say we're near, you know, day six or seven of our 10 day isolation at this point. And then we can all come out swinging and, and be even stronger and better than ever. You know, I, I, I'm hoping that everyone is, um, you know, getting their second doses of their two dose vaccine. If they're going by way of a two dose, I know that the numbers are dwindling, but I do also know that there's a little bit of a grace period where you have up to six weeks afterwards um, to, to get your, your vaccine. So I'm, I'm just hopeful that everyone's doing that because this is just a, it's a great story, you know, and um, we can sort of make parallels between what took place the last few weeks with John and, and how things are going in the world right now as a, as a whole. Yeah, I like that. Honestly, I think the first time I ever thought about the coronavirus was John Rom talking about it. I want to say in February of of 2020, he um it might have been coming out of out of the 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 farmers at Tory Pines and he had some some very interesting comments and I had maybe read one or two headlines. I knew something was going on, but I wasn't tuned into it at all and he he had some heartfelt remarks about you know this virus and people are going to die mm-hmm. i was like i was like what is this guy even talking about and like he's been a very sort of eloquent voice and empathetic voice all throughout and uh, and obviously he showed so much class and and sort of dignity in the way he handled the wd at the memorial and he had a comment on friday at, at tory about you know he he does believe in karma and um and that, you know, good things happen to good people. And because he runs hot on the golf course and, you know, he's bent a few putters and he's he stomped around a few <laughs> bent times. Bent a few greens. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's true. Um, I, I think people have, some folks have gotten the wrong impression about Rom, but I, I find him to be very thoughtful guy. And um, he has like some soul, you know, he's, he's got some heart and he's, he's pretty eloquent about, um, accessing those those emotions and you know you really saw it sunday when I was talk, obviously talking about his young son and how he wants him to be proud of him you know later in life and that's why he, he's trying to rein in some of the, the the anger but you know talking about the relationship with phil mickelson and mm-hmm. and obviously when he was when he sort of dedicated the win to that that late spanish uh reporter who had mentored him and who had died in co- of covid recently uh, there was it was just it was a very soulful kind of display I thought and you know it, it's funny how with players and and obviously with celebrities in general and just people people in general we're kind of quick to uh, make assumptions on what we think about them and then it kind of becomes like this feedback loop whatever you think you're looking for information to to justify that initial impression and um Hopefully the folks who who have not been been big Rom fans have reconsidered because he he really is a classy guy and I think he's, he's a credit to the game the way he handles himself and um, you know of course he's every now and then he's going to lose his mind out there on the golf course I think that everybody does that but again the cameras are always on him looking for that and he's setting aside the those the occasional outbursts which really are only directed inwardly anyway you know he's not. Um, 
I, I, I'm just uh, I, I'm impressed by the by the guy. I mean, at, at 26, I think he's he's very mature and he's very worldly, and uh, I think he's going to be a great ambassador for the sport. I agree completely, um, and I will readily admit that I, you know, oftentimes I will always try and give people the benefit of the doubt, and. Yet at the same time, when you see over and over, you know, like I, I think I remember, uh, was it maybe four years ago when John won the the Scottish Open, was it? Um, and he was on like the, I don't know if it was like the 69th hole or something like that. And he missed a putt. I think maybe it was a 68th hole or something like that. And he like slammed his putter on the green. You know, he wasn't, he was like short range and, and slammed his putter into the green on his way to his victory. I was just like, what are you doing guy? Like that doesn't, that doesn't what? Like it happens, you know, obviously now we shouldn't be seeing that because he, you know, and everyone should be able to catch the, uh, the spike marks if they're in your line or something like that and try and, you know, you can, you can tamp down just about anything these days. Um, but you know, just some of his outbursts, I was always kind of like, you know, it's, it's, he's just a, he's, he's still a kid, you know, and that was always my thing. Um, but there was a part of me that was just like, I found it distasteful. Um, and a lot of that, I'm sure a lot of that is like personal projection of who I was in the past. And the reality is if you're going to have those kind of outbursts, like you think about some of the, and, and I mean, outbursts as in like pure rage and fury and not like, I'm not, I mean, I'll say it, like, you know, Bryson has a little bit of like a woe is me, I'm the victim, whiny kind of like outburst, you know, like not, it's, and it's yes. not, it's, it, it's, it's, see, it should be um, internalized by other people as it's just as, just, that's just my answer. It's, I'm not calling him a baby. It's just, you know, it's just a little bit more, um, you know, complainy as opposed to like the pure fury and rage. Yeah. And so, you know, John, he just gets mad. He he doesn't he doesn't really seem to play the role of the victim a lot that I've come across over the years. Um, he gets mad at shit and he takes his shit out on shit, but he doesn't necessarily sit there and, and, and play much of a victim. And so when you see those kinds of emotions, you're not going to necessarily just have that sole emotion as your, you know, only means to be able to feel and so you know his thoughtfulness his um you know naturally inquisitive nature and um you know all of that i think is something that people don't necessarily see because in order to be on that end of the spectrum of fury you kind of also have to be on the other end of uh to be able to have that that sort of range to be able to feel and think and empathize in a lot of ways so um you know that was as i was watching kind of coming towards the end i was i was thinking about it because obviously i mean you root for who you want to root for and and obviously you want to root for for i wanted to root for louis and at the same time, the story was still going to be incredible regardless. And I could probably couldn't have picked a better person to win than John with everything that had taken place. And, um, you know, I, I think maybe it was Brian Wacker or uh, someone else had, had tweeted how maybe it was Sobel had tweeted about how uh, years ago John was talking about how he learned English by way of Kendrick Lamar and Eminem. And so many people can sit there and be like, oh, my God, like he learned his English through rap and there's so much 
you know, it's, it's so explicit and this and that. And it's like, well, they're telling a story. And if you actually listen to the words, contrary to, you know, if you just sit and look at the lyrics, like one of my anthems is the song Beautiful by Eminem. Because when you sit down and actually read the lyrics, you know, it's like, don't let anyone tell you that you're not beautiful. They can go fuck themselves. Um, you know, it's one of those things of just being like, you know, own your shit, you know, and, and it's like walk a mile, you know, um, Oh God, my brain's not working right now and I obviously can't flow, but you know, it's like <laughs> take a walk in my shoes showing, you know, an understanding of one another's situation and things like that. And, and understanding that regardless of what people say about you, you can believe that you are beautiful and you can know that you're beautiful and you can live a life knowing that you're beautiful and you can take anything on. And there's so much more to, I mean, just music in general, but in all honesty, hip hop and rap, there's so much more to it than just effing and jeffing. You know, it's, it's, these are, 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 um, um, stories that are put to music where it's like, you know, yeah, I mean, we grew up in this way. This is the, the hardships that we dealt with. This is, you know, the anger that I have inside. And this is, you know, a history of my life. You know, I'm, I'm essentially writing a lifelong book. I just get to put some pretty sick beats to it. And so yeah. there are all these little things that you learn about people where you're like, wow, this like explains a lot, which is amazing. And I think the fact that people are able to see the the range of what John is like, you don't necessarily like, you know, you can get stuff on the surface, you know, like, oh, wow. Like, um, say, uh, you know, so-and-so player is actually a lot smarter than he looks. He just looks like a big dumb jock, but he's actually very, very smart. Or, you know, it's a lot of that is more surface related stuff. Whereas with John, mm -hmm. you're like, you get a, you get a glimpse into his soul. And I think that's, that's fucking awesome. So I will admit, I initially for a good amount of time was like, you know, he's, he's just, you know, he's, he's so mad. So and what? obviously he had, he had fatherhood does yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah, I mean, he had to grow up, as we all do. And He's only 26. Exactly. It's hard for me to remember that. I know. And you know what? John Rahm actually has some flow because I think his second year, maybe his third year, I did a, a feature on him for, for Sports Illustrated. We went to lunch out in, um, in Scottsdale. And, of course, we were talking about the whole thing, how, how he learned the English language. And he's, he has a beautiful command of the language now. And... It's one of the greatest regrets of my life is that I don't speak other languages. So I'm I'm always impressed by any of these these athletes, you know, who are not native English speakers when uh, they can express themselves so well. And so uh, I was like, all right, so uh, you know, let's let's talk Kendrick because he I'd, I'd I'd heard that as well. And like we went through the whole catalog, and he like spit a few rhymes for me, and it was pretty good. I was like, wow, John. <laughs> and yeah, you know, I'm not I'm not like tech savvy in the moment. I obviously should have like videoed him and that would have been a, that would have been so money to have that clip but uh, I was you know it, it was it was interesting I think swimming pools is one of his go-to anthems and um, but you're right just about music I actually got in trouble when I was in high school in my English class we had to do a, a poetry like deconstruction we had to pick a poem and and you know break it down blah 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 and I chose a Bob Dylan song and my my teacher was like just up in arms you know not a real poet i said bob dylan is like the poet of all poets give me a break and um uh, uh and i it was such a good paper she couldn't deny me an a but uh it was it was a controversial you know at at, at sling is high that reclassifying bob dylan as a poet but 
so I, I know what you're saying. I mean, same, yeah, totally with hip hop. I, I, I listened to a ton of it. Which I was actually probably the first guy on the same side basketball team who, who discovered rap music, you know, circa 1988. Like I remember playing NWA for my teammates and they were, they were, like mouths agape you know it was just <laughs> such a foreign language and um i mean i think of those guys as journalists like you're talking about i mean the way mm-hmm. they introduced uh people like me who, who were kind of blissfully unaware of, of that experience and quite eloquently um you know took you into their world like there there's there's a huge element of journalism in, in, in a lot of hip-hop so we digress, but um, anyway, yeah, John Rom. So let's talk about Bryson because, I mean, it happened so fast, and a- as I said, I was, I was, I'm a slave to the, my story on Sundays. I care about that more than anything else. And so, as soon as he started going backwards, like, all right, I don't have to worry about Bryson anymore. Someone else, will, you know, we had we had a guy who was kind of charged with r- rounding up the people who didn't win the U.S. Open, which is always kind of a fun story to write, you know, the losers. <laughs> but um, I was writing the winner, so w- once Bryson started backpedaling, I was like, whatever. But, I mean, to to be leading the United States Open as the defending champ after playing a more or less flawless front nine and then to shoot 44 on the back, it it is an epic collapse. I mean, we're we're in like Jean Vandeveld territory when we start ranking the all time like slipping on a banana peel at a major. Like that was unbelievable. And um I didn't even have time to really focus on it in the moment, like I was saying, but a, a day later it's like, what the what? I mean, what what were your impressions of how everything went pear shaped for him? Um <laughs> the best way for me to put it would be uh toddler shat his diaper because and, and, no no and it, then he took you know he took then then toddler took the diaper off and smeared it all over himself uh, i mean and then he and then, then he ran down the sh- and rolled around <laughs> on the walls and a brand new white um, shag carpet. Like this. And then he tossed shag. himself into a dumpster and set that on fire. <laughs> yeah. yeah no, and was hit was, by um, a runaway train. Like, it was, yeah, it, it was. I mean, realistically, I mean, I, I 99% of the time I will feel for someone. I did not feel anything for Bryson when he, I saw him make two pars in one hole. Like, you know, I forget which hole that was coming down. I don't remember if it was 17 or 15 or wherever the hell it was, but it was just, you know, I, the only thing that I can appreciate is captains going down with the ship. And actually Todd and I got into it a little bit because we were trying to, so this is a question I want to pose to you. This is a little bit off topic, but it's indirectly related. Like if you were to think of the PG championship, what would be like, say, three words you would describe um, by way of describing the quintessential PJ championship? And then three words you would use to describe the in terms of setup of golf courses of the U.S. Open, because he he's like, you know, I mean, realistically and I, I mean, I, I didn't disagree with him on this part. And he was like, Bryson should be she should be at such an advantage for the U.S. Open because especially if you're going to go by way of the bomb and gouge method, he hits it so much farther than everyone that, yeah, I mean, even if he misses a fairway, most of the time he'll still be able to advance it better than almost anyone else, which I, I 
definitely agree with. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, three words to describe PJ Tour or PJ Championship setup hosted by the PJ of America versus U.S. Open setup hosted by the USGA. PGA would be, you know, birdies, aggression, and soft greens. You know, because it's changed a little bit, but historically when the PGA was in August and it was bloody hot everywhere they played, whether it was the Midwest or the Northeast. Mm. And and, I mean, think about Riviera, you know, when they shot 20 under or whatever, like back in 95. I mean, the PGA, they just they just couldn't have firm greens. And therefore, the the winning score was was lower and guys could really attack and. Uh, it's changed a little bit with May in in a pleasing way. Uh, But if I think of the the grand scope of all the PGAs, and when we talk about the U.S. Open, it's, you know, it's rough, it's firm greens, and it's it's just, you know, penal. Uh, Do you think the fairways are narrower for the U.S. Open than the PGA Championship generally? I do. I think that... um, Todd, you were right! yeah they are but it also the the when the pg the pga right off the fairway is always more kind i mean they they just don't go for the eight inch rough it, i mean they mm. it's it's been there like i remember the rough at valhalla in 2000 was crazy that, that like tangly bluegrass it was about ankle high but uh in general, it's it's more um, it's just more benevolent. You can play more shots out of PGA Championship rough than you can out of U.S. Open rough. Okay, but that doesn't explain that. That doesn't. Uh, I'm I'm the just width. curious. Yes. Narrower, yeah. Fairways, you know, because it's and it's hard to descri- to to decide. And it's like I sit there and I was like pretty adamant because I was like, and not in a bad way. Um, but I would say, like, for me, I felt like it was a lot more the PGA Championship I would find a lot more similar to, say, like a uh, like a Firestone in that you're just like, it's just, you know, it, it, it's not necessarily as quirky or as thought-provoking a lot of times that uh, in comparison to the U.S. Open. But I would say it's like my thought is a lot of times it just feels more um, and again, this isn't in a bad way because this is highly necessary in a lot of times because it kind of goes towards the mental aspect of the game. I feel like it's not necessarily as engaging. It's more boring, you know, which is its own battle in and of itself. Um, you know, and I so I always thought that the PG Championship fairways tended the fairways themselves. I'm not talking about how you play outside of it. And I'm not saying that the PG Championship is harder by way of golf course in the U.S. Open, I'm just talking about with the fairways. My, I always felt like the PGA Championship fairways tended to be more narrow. You know, obviously you'll have an outlier like like Marion, um, you know, a few years back. Um, but it was like for me, I always thought they were like you know a lot more boring. You know, straighter holes, more narrow by way of the aesthetics and the the way of the setup of the golf course, as opposed to you know, yeah, you'll have the crazy rough, but you know the fairways are pretty are oftentimes a lot more generous on at the u.s open you know regardless of like you know how far offline the guys apparently miss these fairways by like the fairways themselves i feel like are yeah. more wide in the u.s open than in the pg championship i think in general i disagree but there have been some some of the neo u.s open chambers bay aaron hills very wide fairways you know that was like a design mm-hmm. thing um mm-hmm. and uh even pinehurst in some ways uh they wanted the ball to run, so there was there was spots where they they left it 
they wanted the ball to run into trouble, uh, and so some of those some of those fairies were were wider than what you'd expect. But I feel like they quantify it. You know, I don't have the numbers in front of me at, at the moment, but a lot of times they'll give you the average width, and I feel like the U.S. Open it's in the mid twenties, and the PGA Championship is more like in the in the low thirties. And I mean, Kerry Haig, the guy who sets it up for the PGA of America, mm-hmm. he's definitely a kind of let them showcase their talents kind of guy. He he wants the players to be able to hit shots and uh, while also obviously being ch- tested, whereas, you know, we, we know the Open is, is the USGA, they, they want it, they wanted to punish players. And so it, it's a little bit of a design or just more like an organizational philosophy. Uh, so, mm-hmm. uh, but, you know, Tory, I mean, Tory was narrow because, so many of those those fairways are just dead straight. You know, there's not much movement, mm-hmm. and the the only way to kind of make it a test w- w- was to shrink down the width. And it's part of why the uh, I was at Jihad all week with the architecture guys um, because I actually had the outrageous opinion that Torrey Pines is a pretty good U.S. Open venue, and that was so offensive on so many levels to, um, yeah a lot of golf Twitter and it's not my favorite venue. I mean, would I rather be at Shinnecock? Yes. But, um, you know, we already have Shinnecock and it's one of the, it's part of the core rotation. I think Torrey Pines as, you know, a true municipal golf course, which Pebble beach is not. And Pinehurst is not. Um, it's, it's really a people's golf course. And we've now had two U S opens there. They both have been absolutely epic, uh, and you look at the leaderboard uh, from from this from the this most recent U.S. Open. It was all the best players in the world were there. Something about that course. I mean, it's it's a very straightforward test. Okay, here's a fairway. There's a bunker on the left side and there's a bunker on the right side. You have to hit it in between them, and if you do, you can win the U.S. Open. And if you can't, you're, you're just a palooka. And, and here's a green. There's a bunker on the left and there's a bunker on the right. Can you hit it onto the green and give yourself a birdie putt? And if the answer is yes, you can win the U.S. Open. And if not, hit the bricks. <laughs> and it, it asks the same question over and over, which I get can be a little repetitive. But that's the U.S. Open. Like, we and have that's the mass- part of the mental aspect of it, too. Exactly. You have to be able it's, to withstand that. You it's know, supposed it's like to be. It's saying, are we there yet? Are we there yet for a 14-hour exactly. drive? Like. It is supposed to be a slog. It is supposed to be torture. And in that regard, Torrey Pines is great. Like it, it is a very simple test and it's old school. Like here's the hazards hit in between them. There's, you don't need decade math. You stand up on the tee. There's no decision to make. You just have to hit it straight between the fucking bunkers over and over. And, uh, would I want to have every U S open there? no. Every 13 years, why not? I mean, we've now had two classic U.S. Opens. And, um, of course, you know, it's a great TV spectacle. The average, you know, the typical sports fan who maybe only watches the Masters in the U.S. Open, right? They're they're not hardcore golf guys. They do not know what a reverse Redan is. Um, they they are not familiar with, you know, the, the learned teachings of C.B. McDonald. They just like to watch some golf and they think Torrey Pines is freaking great because you have the cliffs and you have the paragliders and you have the ocean. And that's a, a significant constituency of the United States Open. Like there's there's people out there and I know them who only watch a few golf tournaments a year. Uh, so they love Torrey Pines. And 
is the pond in front of 18 cheesy? Of course, but it's a, it's it's like a very simple thing. Like here's a par five. You can make an eagle to win the U.S. Open, but you must hit it in the fairway and you must carry the fucking pond. And um, <laughs> um, and so I just think you know the whole thing was funny. And I mean, oh my god, my my DMs were a dumpster fire. Some of some of these architecture guys, you would think that I called their mom ugly. Like it, I just said, hey. Tory Pines is a pretty good test of golf, and I think it's a pretty good U.S. Open venue. And apparently, that's like the most controversial opinion you can have. So, um, anyway, it was it was a funny part of the week. I mean, I was taking shrapnel left and right, which I obviously enjoy, but um, it's just a, it's a funny hill to die on when you have the players love the setup, I and mean, I have very rarely heard such praise. You know, Phil called it the best U.S. Open setup of his he's ever played, and you know, the effusive praise from the players. It looks great on TV. It was a fantastic leaderboard. It was an epic finish. Like, I don't know, man. Like, I thought it was a pretty good U.S. Open, but uh, it's, it's a minority opinion among the cognoscenti of, of the sport. Well, I, I think that um, your explanation, I think, will hopefully have changed a number of minds in that regard. I can see how... On a very basic level, people can sit there and say that Torrey Pines is trash for the host venue of a U.S. Open. Um, I think that it is vitally important that we have municipal golf courses be part of that rota. Uh, you know, obviously, Bethpage Black is is the first course that comes to mind for people when they think of, um, you know, a muni course followed up by, by Torrey Pines. Um and there are times when I sit there and like I just sit there and I'm just like, oh my god, it's yet another straight par four. I know. Cool, you know. But that is part of the deeper challenge that the USG will present a player. You know, it's like because you sit there and you're like, oh, it's our national open, so we should have you know the reverse camber to the fairways, and then you know if they you know um, like at Charleston Country Club, you know uh, they had uh, you know they 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 you know you've got the the Barrits, you've got you know thumbprint greens, you've got your Redans, you've got this and that, and it's like yeah, to an extent, of course, I understand that, I appreciate that. Realistically, how like you were saying, how many um, fans of you know watching a, a limited number of golf tournaments even know who Seth Rayner is, you know, and I think that one thing that the USGA is wanting to do is making sure that the, like having a venue like Torrey Pines showcases the desire for inclusivity of you don't have to wear a cashmere sweater um, walking into the pro shop with the, the sleeves tied around your neck, regardless of whether it's 60 degrees out or 90 degrees out, and you're not going to sweat either way. You know, you're not going to have your clubman's aftershave on, uh, walking <laughs> out of the locker room. You know, you're not going to have your shoes shined every single time. And yeah, this is going to be representative of our national championship. And I do love that. Um, the, the, you know, the architect buff in me is kind of like, oh, my God. Like, really, it's just dead straight. Like, I know. You know, it's not appealing. Uh, yeah. I, but that being said, I get, I get what you're saying. And I love yeah. that because yeah. it's it, it, it shows the depth that the USGA wants every player to be challenged. Because I'm sure there are going to be there were players that were just like, oh, my God, every hole is straight. Like, this is the stupidest U.S. Open ever. And it's like, well, so do you 
are you sure you want to sign your scorecard after Friday's round? Like, you're pretty much walking into this without the knowledge of, you know, this is a test that the USGA set up for you. Like, buck up and strap on your 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 boots and get your shit done, you know? And um, I will say one criticism because, I, I mean, the I hold the USGA um, as high in regard as, as any organization. Um, I think it's bullshit that they called Bryson and his agent and asked if he would mind being paired with Brooks. Um, I mean, that's been, re- that's in dispute because I mean, the agent and okay. Bryson both denied that part of it. I, now, <laughs> okay. that, but in, given my vast experience, that doesn't mean anything, but, um, did Bryson I don't also know. say that his, his social media dude, it doesn't exist. And he accidentally logged onto Sam Burns's account when he I know. I know. I mean, believe me, I, how do you know agents are lying? It's because their lips are moving. I mean, I'm aware of it's this. It's because they're agents. I know. It's a professional necessity. But, um, yeah, it would be a bad move if, if the USGA starts giving players veto power on pairings. At the same time, I'm glad or it didn't happen. On anything. Correct. I'm glad it didn't happen. It would have felt forced and kind of cheap. Like, they need to earn it. And there was they were both... It looked like they might play out together on Saturday and Sunday. You know, they were nibbling mm-hmm. around the same scores. Like, and then even on Sunday, there was a moment where it could have been a, a Brooks Bryson shootout for the U.S. Open, even though they mm-hmm. weren't in the same group. And that's what will make it an actual rivalry, a, a made-for-TV spectacle of pairing them together. Uh, they just haven't earned that yet, and so I was glad it didn't happen. Whatever the the backroom machinations were. Um, you know, neither Brooks nor Bryson has earned that. And as fans, neither have we. Like, it has to happen organically. So um, I, I'm I'm glad. Like, let's let this develop. You, I know we're... I mean, Tiger and Phil, they rarely went head-to-head. When they did, it was delicious. Like, Doral, like, in 05, that was, that was epic. You know, Bethpage U.S. Open, a couple Masters... The reason it was it was special was because it wasn't forced. It just happened. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Agreed. Um, I mean, they were almost never paired together, partly because they didn't want that and they made that known. And um, but it that helped, I think, because it's like you you know boxers before a big before a big fight are not like broed up. You know, they don't see each other until they get in the ring, and that 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 adds like some crackling tension to that moment and. Uh, I think that um, let's just pump the brakes on on Brooks and Bryson and and oh by the way both of them have like their brand they're hurting their brand right now by playing crappy on Sunday at the majors like that um, this is really not the time for them to be talking so much mess when like okay go out there and get it done with your clubs for a while so um, uh, th- that was an interesting subplot to the whole week I agree but let, so I let agree me just, with everything oh, you said oh, yeah jump in there. The thing that was bullshit, if it is true, was that power was given to Bryson and that he was able, if this is what took place, to say, no, I don't want it. It's the fucking well, U.S. Open. You get a tee time, you play. So I don't think the USJ should have contacted him about it if this is true to what happened, nor do I think he should have said what he said. I think he, if if he had said no, I think he should have said, you know what, as long as you give me a tea time, I'm going to be grateful, I'm going to be happy, and I'm going to be excited. That being said, you know, if you want me to have a legitimate shot at 
being a successful defending champion, you know, are you providing me an additional challenge that other players are not? And if that's the case, do you think that's really equitable? So that's your that's like, you know, a, 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 a diplomatic way of saying, oh, I don't really want to do it, but it's up to you. You know, right. it's nice manipulation, which I'm 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 the queen of, you know, so <laughs> it's just I just I would have preferred it if they were just like, well, these are the tea times that we're going to set up, take it or leave it. Or if they did ask him if that w- if his answer would have been, you know, something a little bit more diplomatic mm-hmm. along those yeah. lines. That was the bullshit part. Right. If they showed any deference, I, I guess you could argue it's because he's a defending champ and. Yeah, but yeah, the whole the whole thing is unsatisfying on various levels. Let me just go back to the architectural thing because I just want to state this for the record, because I'm sure there's little elves out there going to mine every one of my comments and try and throw it back at me for the rest of my life. Girl, who gives a shit if they do shit? No, I know. Sorry, I don't. But I I just want to state for the record that I love good golf course architecture. I love interesting golf courses. Uh, I've been lucky to play a bunch of them. It's not like Torrey Pines is my ideal golf course. I'm just saying it's the only, it's the only course we had for this U.S. Open. And at some point, you, you have to accept they're going to play the, the tournament here this week. So why don't we focus on some of the positives and enjoy what's being presented to us? Like, I mean, even on Sunday of the U.S. Open, on people were still going back and forth about it. So that That's why I kind of lost my mind. It, it's like... There's definitely a debate to be had about should Tory be redone again, and there's a lot of ways we could make it way more interesting, and that's fine. But um, you know, the, but they didn't the, up until this point. There isn't another redesign that took place from Monday to Sunday. I know. So what just, does bitching about something that can't be changed do? I know. But, Let's celebrate like, this. Yeah, or bitch once. I'm I'm all, I'm okay with a little bitching, but it was just a constant wilding out about Tory. It's like you know what? Like the tournament started now. They're counting scores. I'm more focused on like what people are doing because uh, ultimately you got to dance that, with the girl that brought you. I know she has bad breath. I mean, whatever. Like you know. But um, all right. So before before we we end this very lively podcast, like tell us about the. The women's LPGA Championship. How you feel about your game, about the golf course? Like, like, give, take us into your world a little bit. Yeah. So, um, like I said the, uh, earlier, we are in um, playing at the Atlanta Athletic Club in Johns Creek, Georgia, which is about an hour north of Atlanta, maybe forty-five minutes or so. Um, original Robert uh, Trent Jones. Yeah, senior design, and then Reese Jones, if I'm not mistaken, had done the the redo, um, or the Reese Jones company had done the redo. Um, Women's U.S. Open was held here a number of, uh, like, was it 1990 when Betsy King won? And um, Todd and I went to the golf course on Monday after getting into Atlanta from Grand Rapids, which was, you know, a, a... I wouldn't go so far as to say it was a harrowing experience, but there was a delayed flight. There was a tornado. Um, you know, all the bags made it. Our bodies made it. 
everything is brand and that's all that matters. And, um, you know, he Todd actually used to work at the Atlanta athletic club back in like the mid nineties, which I just, I love. And so he took me down to like the, the bag storage area and like the caddy area and to, you know, showed me around different <laughs> parts of the clubhouse and, um, you know, gave me a little bit of a history of some of the, the hall of fame members that were over there. And it was just really cool. We walked along the, the hall of, of champions of, of, the major championships that that um, AAC has hosted, and it was so funny because for the 1990 U.S. Women's Open, I looked at they have a poster where every player signs when you register, and so I was going up and down. I think I counted like from the 1990 U.S. Women's Open, there were at least 20 contestants that at some point in my career I had played with in an LPGA event. That's cool. And, you know, it's just, it was just so, so cool. And um, we had played with Julie Inkster at the, on the Sunday of the Meyer LPGA. And, and Todd was like, dude, it was really impressive watching her. And I was like, we, he was like, oh, there's her signature. Um, when we, we, he was like, it's crazy to think that she, you know, she played in that and played last week, you know. Um, but preparation's been good. I, uh, you know... Don't give a shit if I catch any fleck for this. Um, I may, I, I've gone by way of Xander Shoffley. I've got an arm lock putter that I'm toying around with. Um, that's a whole other beast, whole other story about what is going on because it's just, it's, it's crazy to me because I'm such a good putter, but I haven't been able to one, make shit or two, get shit to the hole. And I think that there's still a lot of, um, uh, uh, trauma that I'm still having to work through by way of what happened at Shadow Creek, uh, I guess four weeks ago. And so switched to the arm lock putter last week and, you know, had like 20 or 21 birdies for the week. Um, still made a number of mistakes, which is all good, but, you know, finished double digits under par for the tournament. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm very excited to be here. Very excited. I mean, that's a big deal for a traditionalist like yourself to go arm lock. But, I mean, hey, it's, it's legal within the rules of golf, so why not? And you, I, well, and so I got the putter last week on Wednesday, put it in the bag on Thursday. So I didn't pull a Xander in that I spent several weeks with my coach working on, on stuff. I was just like, well, see what happens. And before I uh, had teed it up, I was like, well, even if I were to use this as a training aid just to help keep that left hand, my wrist locked and this and that, whatever, whatever. And I rolled a few putts, and I was like... It doesn't feel great, but everything has felt so bad as of lately. I'm like, you know what? Fuck it. I don't care. And you know what? At the end of the day, if as long as the putts go in and it's, you know, I'm not shoving it, you know, anywhere. I'm not, you know, exactly anchoring it. You know, it's, 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 it's just kind of running up along my arm and I have my right hand hooked around the grip. So it's not, you know, like the putter itself isn't touching like, or I no, not hooked. What? I don't know. It's like, Oh God, that's my coffee. Like it's, it's like this, it's a big grip. My hands can't touch everything. I just kind of like, you know, everything's just like, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's just, I don't I'm more know. confused than I was what your grip looks like, but thanks for the visual. I, oh, I just, I'm holding it like this. I don't know. It's uh, I, my hands are so little. So, um, um, but you know, but I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's putting is so at the moment. Yeah. I mean, putting is so mental that if you can, 
just kind of refresh your brain and get, have something new to think about and, and work on. And even if it doesn't last forever, like I, I, it's, it's almost like a break instead of worrying about the old way. Now you can be excited about the new way and soon you'll be disenchanted and bitter, but at least you're starting down the road <laughs> with some excitement. But, um, I mean, 21 birdies, yeah. that's, that's no joke. So yeah. uh, obviously we're rolling some putts in. Yeah. Missed a lot of shit, but you know, still made a shit ton of putts. So that's, you know, ultimately all that matters. And I'm, I'm, you know, it's, it's good for me to get you, you know, just feeling that left wrist staying a little bit more square for a little bit longer. And yeah, I mean, it might only be for a couple of weeks and then I go back to my, to my old trusty or, you know, who knows what it's going to do as long as it, you know, at the end of the day, as long as it goes in, you know, and I mean, I, I, I'm always looking into the rules in terms of what I can do, why I can't do what I, you know, this, that, and, and, you know, like even for this week at the women's PGA, the KPMG women's PGA, I contacted the rules officials and I was like, Hey, can I wear metal spikes? Because metal spikes have been banned from the LPGA tour. But if it's another entity that's running the event, whether it's the USGA, the RNA, the PGA of America, you know, the rules might change. I said, Hey, can I bring, can I bring back my medals? And they were like, yes, because of the um, fact that the PGA of America is running this event, they allow for metal spikes. And so I'm like, clickety clack motherfuckers. <laughs> I love that sound. It's so macho. It, I mean, it takes me back to time. Like yeah. It, to take, cause it takes me back to like the mid nineties when I was just out on the golf beat and everyone was wearing nails mm -hmm. and they're always it, like, I think of like Colin Montgomery, you know, he's pissed off. He's like stomping down away from the scoring <laughs> tent and you know, Steve Elkington and, and all these grouchy dudes I had to deal with like in the beginning of my, my life as a reporter. And that's just a sound like they're just, they're coming at you or they're running away from you. Like, um, <laughs> like it's very evocative. So I, um, I'm glad you're keeping it alive. That's funny. Yeah, when I can and where I can. I mean, I I've had metal spikes my entire career, so this year has been this year has been more of an adjustment for me than last year was. Um, so you know, and I've and I've 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 gone to our our you know the 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 chief rules official, and I was just like, I'm not here to bitch. I'm not here to complain. I'm not saying a decision was right or wrong. I'm just sharing simple facts with you. I have physically slipped on my um soft spikes more than 12 times now this year take that information for what you will don't make any changes or whatever i just want you to know that these events have happened so thank you for listening to me <laughs> have a nice day yeah yeah there's no editorializing in there at all you're just presenting facts these are facts this shit happened to me i almost died <laughs> here you go i'm gonna keep doing it and keep almost dying unless a change is made, but this I mean, is you just, should, you should just go down. Like if you could just go down in a heap, you could get workman's comp. You could, you could sue the LPGA for all the soft spikes. People, it could actually be more lucrative if you fall and hurt yourself with soft spikes. Nah, I'm cool. If that shit happens, it's going to have to happen organically. <laughs> okay. I respect that. Um, well, I, I'm looking forward to next week's podcast already to hear about, the arm lock and how that goes. I mean, that's a, that's a huge thing. It's a it's a big issue in the sport right now. I mean, whether this is going to get legislated out, and as you said, I mean, for Xander to, to just go to that at the U.S. Open in his hometown when he's one of the favorites, like it's a big deal. So, 
Um, Not to mention in the seven rounds up until so it was something like someone had tweeted, you know, in the seven rounds since he's announced that he switched to the arm lock putter, he's gone down 0.89 strokes as in like yeah. he's he's lost almost no, he a was full a, stroke he was to a the great field. putter before. Like it's amazing. ninth in like, strokes gained putting prior to the I mean, switch. I know it's remarkable. So. All right, well, have a heck of a week. And uh, as always, we will be following your scores uh, closely. No pressure, but, uh, um, you know. That doesn't sound like a threat whatsoever. It's cool. (laughs) All I'm saying is we're cheering for you, CK. Like, go get it. Go live your life. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. All right, well, uh, this was fun. I feel I got to unburden myself. You know, I feel like I've I've sort of, uh, I can can close the books on U.S. Open week now. This was was therapeutic for me. So thank you for allowing me to go off a little bit there. Oh, so uh, you're so you're basically doing what I've been doing for the last nine yeah. episodes. Then, <laughs> Welcome. I mean, God, it feels it got it feels good. Like the, the, we got to flip the script here. Like uh, this should be my therapy hour. Jeez, um, but anyway, all good stuff. So, uh, why, why don't why don't you end things for our, our listeners at home? For sure. Um, well, I just wanted to say, um, you know, if you people that are our subscribers and listeners have any people in particular you would like to have as a guest coming up. We do have um, the potential for a few guests lined up happening in the very near future. Um, But if there are any people you want to request for a guest, let us know. Um, You can reach me by way of Twitter and Instagram. I am at the Christina Kim. Alan is at Alan Shipnuck. Um, And, you know, any questions you may have, for us, please be sure to at us on Twitter and or Instagram so that we'll be able to actually answer some of them. Because I, I think last week's episode where we did a bit of a Q&A, that was a lot of fun and I really enjoyed that. Um, but just make sure to listen to rate this podcast because that helps with metrics, apparently, or something. Um subscribe tell all your friends about it and i guess until next week thank you so much for listening to full send with christina kim and alan shipnuck that's a wrap bye